0: Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is Halloween. So let's dive right in with fact number one. Halloween is older than Christmas. Many Christian festivals have their roots in older ceremonies. Easter takes its name from the goddess Eostra, who was celebrated during Eostomornath, the Anglo Saxon name for April. And Christmas was co opted from pagan midwinter festivals such as the Roman Saturnalia and the Anglo Saxon Yule. But the origins of Halloween go back far further than that. To the Celtic festival, of Sawane. The Celts were an assortment of tribes and small kingdoms scattered across Western and Central Europe, with their own distinctive languages and religions around 700 BC. Even after their lands were conquered by the Romans, their culture continued to thrive in places such as Brittany, Cornwall, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. Fundamental to Celtic beliefs was the tension between light and dark, the former seen as positive, lucky, and bountiful, and the latter as negative, menacing, and destructive. The Celtic year began on the 1st of November and was divided in two by the great fire festivals of Beltane in spring and Samhain in autumn. Samhain was the most important, a three to six day festival that followed the harvest and the beginning of winter, which was coming for several series. They would make bonfires, literally a fire of animal bones, as a sacrifice to the gods. According to Celtic mythology, the veil between the spirit world and our world becomes weak during Samhain, making it easier for spirits and the souls of the dead to return to the realm of the living. My, that would really spoil a Christmas dinner, wouldn't it, if your deceased granddad popped up at the dinner table and started floating your turkey around the room. The Celts feared these mischievous spirits, who were thought to harm or damage their crops. Like helping druids with their prophecies, which were an important source of comfort as they headed into the long, dark winter. So the festival was a mixture of fear excitement and revelry and probably a fair bit of naked dancing and this festival was still going strong even when christianity started to spread into britain and france in the ninth century and pretty much decided overnight that paganism in all its forms should just quietly go away so following that theme in 837 Pope Gregory IV switched the date of the festival to the 1st of November in an attempt to reframe Samhain as some sort of Christian festival under the all-new name of All Hallow Mass. Then, in the year 1000, the church added All Souls Day on the 2nd of November as a day to honour the dead. Not just the saints, why should they get all the fun and prayers? And this new day took on many of the attributes of the old pagan festival Samhain. It was basically the same thing under a different name, including big bonfires, parades and so on. Meanwhile, within the Celtic religion, the traditional night of Samhain on the 31st of October began to be called All Hallows' Eve, which eventually morphed into Halloween. Many of the customs from All Souls' Day had lapsed by the late 19th century, but were eventually co-opted by our modern Halloween. As an interesting note, Samhain itself may actually predate the Celts by quite a lot. Archaeologists have found evidence of the original fire festival that dates back to 4,500 BC, or maybe even 5,000 BC. So, your Halloween celebrations could potentially be 7,000 years old. Huh, take that, Santa. Next up, moment from history. Where each week we look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, the Nazi, he wielded kindness as a weapon what if I told you, the FBI owe their most successful interrogation techniques to a Nazi. And not just any Nazi, but the top interrogator in the Luftwaffe. But, before you start imagining the Gestapo and torture chambers, the interrogation techniques in question included nature walks, cracking jokes, and feeding his victims homemade cakes. I know, you don't usually associate the Nazis with lemon drizzle cake, but bear with me. The inventor of this odd technique was a most unlikely German interrogator, and a former art student called Hans Schaff, who was living and working in South Africa when the Second World War began. He'd been living in South Africa for a decade and was married to a British South African woman, but they happened to be visiting relatives in Germany when the war broke out, Unable to leave, he was eventually drafted into the Wehrmacht, the German military, and was due to be sent to the Eastern Front. Now, a trip to the Eastern Front wasn't exactly a holiday. In fact, it was regarded as a death sentence. More than 4 million German soldiers died there during the course of the war, and another 370,000 were captured and taken off to Soviet prisoner of war camps the losses on the Soviet side were even greater. Schaff spoke fluent English, and his wife knew that could save him. So she managed to talk her way into the general's office and persuaded him that her husband would be wasted as cannon fodder. Instead, he was assigned to work as an interpreter. He was plucked from the garrison just before they headed east, and he became an assistant interrogator for the Luftwaffe. Early on in the job, he witnessed a particularly nasty interrogation, which left a prisoner cowering, terrified in the corner. Schaff noted that the interrogator's technique was not only brutal, but it was completely ineffective. Surprise, surprise, beating a prisoner within an inch of his life would only confuse and terrify him, and usually caused him to give false information just to make the torture stop. Shaft promised that if he ever became an interrogator, he would try to beat them down with kindness, not violence. And he soon got an opportunity to put his thesis to the test. Did you guys know there are butterflies that drink blood? Or that there's a species of beetle that can shoot boiling liquid out of its butt. Or that blue whales are so big you can swim through their arteries. But there's a species of bat that's so small that it weighs less than a penny. My name's Maya. And my name's Connor. And we are the co-hosts of World's Wildest Podcast. If you guys love nature and you love learning about how crazy it is, Connor and I have over 30 years of experience in wildlife conservation, and we're here to tell you all about them. World's Wildest will take you on a journey to meet Earth's most extreme creatures from the world's strongest to our world's smelliest. Make sure to subscribe for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Because after proving his skills and resolve, he was appointed head of the Luftwaffe's interrogation department, tasked with extracting information from captured Allied pilots. Sure enough, he was as good as his word. He never lifted a finger or his voice during his interrogations. Instead, he would befriend prisoners of war brought to him. He would take them out for walks or go swimming with them. They exchanged stories about their lives. In fact, he didn't really seem to be interested in eliciting any information from them at all. Instead, He reinforced a sense of mutual trust and respect by simply asking the prisoner to promise not to try to escape whilst they were walking in the woods. And in exchange, he accompanied them unarmed. He said they invariably kept their side of the bargain. He trust them alone in his office, where he let them read the US military newspaper Stars and Stripes. He gave them cigarettes and even let one US pilot fly a German fighter plane. (laughs) If ever there was a moment for someone to say, "Mm, on second thoughts, I might live to regret that. This was probably it. When they did talk about military matters, Schaff would give the impression that his companion had nothing to tell him that he didn't already know. However, he'd done his homework. He always read radio transcripts, scoured the newspapers, used previous interrogation reports, all to make sure he knew as much as possible about the prisoner he was interrogating. He compiled detailed dossiers of US pilots' lives and units, so he could drop details about his prisoner into conversation, giving the impression he already knew him like a close friend or ally. Then, Whilst talking with the prisoner, he would gradually glean more information through casual conversation, and each time he learnt something new, he would subtly repeat it back to them, which only reinforced the prisoner's sense that Chaff already knew everything there was to know. You see, if you're under the impression that you couldn't give away any confidential information, even if you wanted to, because your captor already knows everything you could possibly tell him. Then you're naturally going to drop your guard and start unwittingly spilling the beans. So, as Schaff smiled and plied them with friendship and cigarettes, he would throw in a leading question or make an erroneous statement, which his companion would feel compelled to respond to. What's really fascinating is that his victims had no idea they'd given any information away. For example, Hubert Zemke, a US pilot shot down in October 1944, wasn't even aware Schaff was pumping him for information until he got back to America after the war. When he found out about Schaff's techniques, Zemke said, what did he get out of me? There is no doubt in my mind that he did extract something but I haven't the slightest idea what." He described one conversation with Schaff during a stroll in the woods, in which Schaff had mentioned that tracer bullets from US planes sometimes left a streak of white smoke in the sky instead of a red one, like normal. Schaff mistakenly suggested this was due to a chemical shortage. Zemke immediately corrected him, saying, no, it isn't, the change in color indicates to the crew that the aircraft is running out of ammo. A fairly crucial piece of information, but Zemke had been completely unaware that he'd given away anything. And he wasn't alone. Of the 500 pilots Shaf interrogated, only 20 had kept all their secrets to themselves, at least as far as they knew. And all the others had absolutely no idea they'd let anything slip at all. Military personnel at the time were, and still are, trained to resist interrogation techniques, but they're trained to resist rather direct and violent interrogations. They certainly weren't trained to resist cake and country strolls. Nobody can resist that. As one former prisoner said, Schaff could get a confession of infidelity from a nun. After the war, the US military was so impressed by Chef's methods, They invited him to give lectures at the Pentagon. He eventually emigrated to the US, settling in Los Angeles, and went back to his first passion, art, becoming a successful mosaic artist. There are actually examples of his mosaics in Disney's Sleeping Beauty Castle and the California State Capitol Building. Yes, unbelievably, both those mosaics were done by a top Nazi interrogator. Despite Schaff's humane interrogation techniques proving extremely successful during the war, the US government, and indeed pretty much every other world government, disregarded them completely after the war. When the Bush administration took to torturing prisoners at Guantanamo Bay, former CIA officers claimed such violence was necessary. But a 2014 Senate report found that the agency's use of torture failed to stop any imminent plots, sometimes even sabotaging information gathering. At least one suspect who had, quote-unquote, sung like a Tweety Bird, according to CIA notes, before his interrogation, provided no further useful information after he was subjected to, quote-unquote, harsh interrogation, which I think is military shorthand for we turned his brains to custard. But now, Shaft's techniques have re-entered the spotlight. In recent years, it's been the focus of research funded by an FBI-led task force of interrogation agents and analysts. In a 2016 study, researchers were able to show that building a rapport with a subject and giving them the impression that you already know everything they could tell you is far more successful than the, euphemistically named, direct approach. Using Shaft's techniques, not only do people give away more information, there's no need to break the Geneva Convention or the Bill of Human Rights in the process. And I, for one, think that's progress. Now, we'll take a short break and very soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. Halloween traditions have very strange origins. I guess Halloween itself is already pretty strange. For starters, kids put pillowcases on their heads and do the one thing their parents have spent their entire lives telling them not to. Knock on strangers' doors and talk to them. But where does this and other odd traditions actually come from? Well, begging for candy comes from an old English custom associated with All Souls Day, traditionally celebrated on the 2nd of November. On All Souls' Eve, the poor would offer prayers for the dead in return for soul cakes from their wealthier neighbours. Soul cakes were like hot cross buns without the currants or the cross on top. You know, all the fun bits. This practice was actively encouraged by the church as a way to rebrand the pagan custom of leaving food and wine for roaming spirits. No surprise there. The church spent hundreds of years just making up weird shit just to differentiate themselves from paganism. From this grew the tradition of going a souling, in which children would traipse around the neighborhood demanding ale, food and money in exchange for prayers. By the late 19th century, Halloween begging had all but died out and existed only in pockets of the north of England. But it found its way to America, when it was brought over by Irish and Scottish settlers in the 1800s. And from there, it grew into the global phenomenon it is today. As for the dressing up part of trick-or-treating, well, that goes back to an ancient tradition known as mummering, sometimes called mumming. It dates back to medieval Europe, and was a form of horseplay, which was popular at festival time. Groups of friends would dress up in disguises and play pranks on their neighbours. Ah, so that's what everyone did before Netflix. It reached Britain with the Romans, and eventually found its way to North America in the 19th century. In the early 20th century, Halloween really took hold in rural America, where they embraced its pagan roots fully. They seemed to have grabbed any and every ancient custom they could find. The weirder, the better. Apple bobbing, carving jack-o'-lanterns, you name it. And people began dressing as scarily as possible. If you've ever seen those old sepia photos of trick-or-treaters, you'll know just how damn scary costumes actually were back in the day. By the 1920s, people were holding annual Halloween masquerades and preparing costumes months in advance. By the 1930s, it was big business, with commercial costume manufacturers churning out Disney characters, pirates, fortune tellers and other themed costumes although I think the slutty nurse and bunny rabbit costumes came a little later. Whilst those masquerades sound genteel enough, the prank playing side of Halloween had been embraced a little too enthusiastically. There are accounts around the turn of the century of children stretching ropes across sidewalks to intentionally trip people up in the dark, mowing down their shrubs or pending waste bins and worse. (laughs) Jolly pranksters exploded pipe bombs in 1888, smeared the walls of new houses with black paint in 1891, and in 1894 200 boys in Washington DC threw bags of flour at well-dressed commuters. By the 40s it was completely out of hand, to the point that the American press referred to the rampant vandalism and rioting as The Halloween Problem. There were various attempts to ban Halloween and rebrand it as Youth Honour Day or Conservation Day. Yeah, you're going to need catchier titles than that to rebrand Halloween. But the real solution came via distraction, waving shiny sweets at the children and using cartoons to teach them to ask politely rather than put a brick through someone's window. The propaganda campaigns began in the thirties, but it was a Donald Duck cartoon called Trick or Treat in 1952 that really got the message out to millions. And this being America, commerce stepped up to the table. Halloween candy and costume profits hit $300 million in 1965, and have kept rising ever since. Ah, good old capitalism to the rescue once more. Fact number three. Who put the Jack in Jack-o'-lanterns? Well, that kind of depends on who you ask. There's a few potential sources for the name, who probably all played a part. The name Jack-o'-lantern originally applied to a lantern carrier. There are references to Jack as a generic name for a man, like dude, guy or bloke from the 14th century onwards. Which is why the hero of so many nursery stories is called Jack. Think Jack and the Beanstalk, Jack and Jill, the house that Jack built, Jack Horner, Jack Sprat. I could go on. Today we still have Jack of all trades and Jack in a Box. By the 19th century, the name Jack-o'-lantern had become associated with lanterns carved out of turnips, due to an Irish legend about an unsavoury fellow named Stingy Jack. The gist of the story is that Jack, somehow, trapped Satan up a tree, and only let him down once the devil agreed to not claim his soul giving Jack carte blanche to do what he liked and still get into heaven. But when he died, God took one look at his track record and refused him entrance into the pearly gates. Satan wouldn't let him into hell either, so he was condemned to wander the earth forever, with just an ember of hellfire for light. To carry his piece of infernal flame He carved out the inside of a turnip, and so were born turnip lanterns. So people began to carve out turnips and other root vegetables and give them scary faces, then placed them in windows or near doors to fend off stingy Jack and other wandering spirits at Halloween. Root vegetables were the Halloween Jack of Lantern choice back in the day, I don't know about you, but if you ever tried to gouge the middle out of a turnip, it's like carving a block of wood. It's not clear why the Brits and Irish didn't just try carving pumpkins or other gourds. Pumpkins had certainly been around at the point in the UK for centuries. There are English recipes for pumpkin pie from the 1700s. But the idea of using pumpkins instead of... Awkward turnips for lanterns didn't really take off here until the 1990s. Presumably, they used turnips because that's what Stingy Jack had used. But that tradition was soon out of the window when people realised it's much, much easier to just carve a pumpkin. Nowadays, of course, pumpkins are almost exclusively the vegetable of choice for jack-o'-lanterns in Britain. And England is home to Europe's largest pumpkin grower, Based in Lincolnshire, this one farm produces two million pumpkins a year. But it hasn't grown the largest single pumpkin, which was grown in Italy in 2021, and weighed in at nearly one and a quarter tonnes. That's £2,700. But if you want to try something a little bit different this Halloween, and lead your neighbours into thinking you've gone a bit mental, I would recommend carving a turnip instead of a pumpkin. And that was Random Interesting Facts. Thank you for listening, and I'd absolutely love to hear your comments and suggestions for future episodes. And also be sure to like, review, and subscribe. Please do leave a comment if you've learned something new from this episode. And if you have your very own random interesting fact that you're just bursting to share with me, then tweet it using the hashtag RiffPodcast. That's R-I-F podcast. So remember, tweet your interesting facts using the hashtag RiffPodcast. And thanks again for listening.